scripture reading is taken from the book of Romans chapter 8 verses 30 to 39. Romans 8, 30 to 39, you will also find that in the middle of your um, information sheet. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Doesn't seem as full as usual. Seems to be a lot of empty seats this morning. Must be the weather. Well, last week we talked about the Christian, the person who has accepted Jesus and the gospel about him and have responded to the gospel through baptism. The person who has taken this step has been called. He or she has been justified by what Jesus did on the cross. And he, she has been glorified as well. We talked about this in our last lesson. In the following verses that we just had in the reading, we learn that if God did not even spare his own son and sent him to die to save us from our sins, then who can be against us? Think about it. You had God himself that died for you. If God died for us, who could be against us? If we are in a right relationship with God and continuing to follow him and his word, why should we be afraid of anyone? Think about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? We have nothing to fear. Who will bring a charge against someone God has accepted and who has remained faithful to him? Who who dares to bring a charge against God? No one, because the only one who can condemn us, we know, is God himself. And Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. So we have Jesus there, interceding for us. And so from the reading... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Our enemies in the world can't do it. They have no power to be able to do so. The only thing that can separate us from the love of Christ is us. We are the only ones that can separate ourselves from the love of Christ by our disobedience and refusal to follow Jesus. And not just our enemies, but nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not trouble, not hardship. Or anything else. As I said in last week's lesson, these things should actually draw us closer to Christ, not away from him. And so if we remain faithful to the end, we will enter his presence when he returns for us. We get to look forward to that. We get to look forward to the second coming of Christ, and we get to enjoy 
enjoy eternity with God. So now we come to chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 1 to 5 now. So if you'll read along with me. The Apostle Paul said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Paul talked about having great sorrow and anguish. He was once a Jew who was misguided just as much as his Jewish audience, the ones that he wanted to reach. He was just as misguided as they were. And now he had come to Christ. And so he's trying to bring them to Christ. And he's troubled because he can't do it. They don't want to listen. He felt a heavy burden because of their rejection of the gospel. So maybe this is because of the amount of zeal that he had as a Jewish Pharisee and how far he went in persecuting the church, how far he went in trying to say that Jesus was not the Messiah. Don't listen to him. Don't follow him. And he went after those who did. So think about how he must have felt. Look at how he described himself before and after becoming a Christian in Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 to 9. And listen to what he says in these verses. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anything else, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, think, think of how he's saying this, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So think about what he was saying there. Paul knew Pharisaic and Jewish life before knowing Christ. So he was there. His audience, he was there where they are now. But he now considered all that rubbish. It was just garbage to him compared to knowing Jesus. Imagine what a statement that is. But that is where he was at. It's not where his audience is at. And he's trying to get his audience there, and he can't. So what he did and what happened with him, I'd like to use an illustration. It might not be the greatest illustration to to get the point across, but nonetheless, I tried to use illustrations once in a while. And so think about this. Think about this miracle cure that you found, okay, or that you heard about. You heard about this miracle cure. Somebody told you about it. And you're telling yourself, ah, I don't believe in that stuff. You know, that's the kind of stuff they used to do back in the past. You know, they had chuck wagons and the person would try to sell you snake oil and that kind of stuff. Don't tell me about a miracle cure. 
And so you're so adamant about it that you decide to rally and get all these people on your side. And, and you're like, yeah, you're getting people all pumped up and you've got a whole bunch of people all going after anybody who even says that this miracle cure is real, that it could really happen. And so you convince these other people, you've got this group, they're all with you, and when you try to talk to others about it, after you learn the truth, that's the kind of response you get. After you realize, yeah, it is a miracle cure, I was wrong. And then you try to talk to people about it, that's the reaction you get. They don't want to listen. You've already convinced them it's not a miracle cure. So imagine, and when you think about Paul, what he must have felt like. Here he was, the truth, the gospel, laid out, and he was adamant against it. Something that could save people's lives. And then he's on the other side of it and trying to convince the same people that he got all pumped up and got involved with them. And, yeah, yeah, no, it's not true. And now he's trying to convince them. So imagine how he must feel When we read these verses here in Romans, in Romans, think about it. He did a good job convincing many that Jesus was a fraud, that he wasn't really the Messiah. So imagine how he must have thought, thinking, these Jews, they won't listen to me. He's trying and they don't want to listen. They probably viewed him as some kind of traitor. You know, here he was. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. And so with this in mind, how hard do you think it was for him to reach the Jews with the gospel? Was he successful? Well, he reached some. But when you read through the Gospels, you realize, and and when you read through Paul's letters, he was the apostle for the Gentiles. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons was he couldn't reach his own. He he had already been convinced them that Jesus was not the Messiah, and then he's turning around and saying he is the Messiah. They don't want to listen to him. It's too late. Damage is done. So listen to his words again in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Think about that background. Look at those verses again and see, and see what he says. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He wishes that he himself could be cut off if he could save them, if it meant saving them. That's how bad he feels about it. So coming back to the text, as one commentator said, he said this, He said, Paul identifies with his people and regrets to the bottom of his soul their rejection when they had so many advantages which should have led to their eager acceptance of the gospel. So imagine how troubled he is. Now think about us. Think about some of you. You know, maybe some of you were against the idea that God existed, that God exists. You know, and then you become a Christian, and then you're trying to convince people that you're on the same page with that God does exist. You imagine the difficulty you run into. Or maybe you were against the gospel, and you obeyed the gospel. You responded to it. And then you're trying to convince somebody else of the gospel. Imagine the difficulty you run into. People don't want to hear it. It's like, have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? You think about Paul, when Paul was before Festus and Agrippa. And they said those very words to Paul. He said, have you lost your mind, Paul? You know, what are you talking about? Because they knew Paul. They knew who he was. He was somebody who was persecuting the church. He was against Christ and all that. And all of a sudden, he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. So maybe you've had an experience similar to that. So Paul was so sad that he said he wished that he could be cursed and cut off from Christ if it meant that he could save his own race, the Israelites. However, Paul knew that he couldn't. He knew that he couldn't save them. 
because coming to Christ and accepting the gospel is a conscious choice that each and every person has to make for themselves. No one can make you choose. He couldn't twist their arm. They had to choose to do that on their own. So Paul said at the end of verse 3, in the start of verse 4, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Israel was the covenant name of Jacob. They were adopted and became children of God. The people of Israel were people of covenants and promises. Of all the people of the world, they were truly blessed. They needed to realize how blessed they truly were. Well, Paul added one last thing in verse 5. Let's reread verse 5. Paul emphasized that Jesus came from heaven, but as to his human side, his ancestry could be traced back to the patriarchs, back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus' ancestry came from the Jews. The one they had been waiting for was one of their own. And look what it says again in verse 5. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So take a look at John chapter 1, and thinking about this idea that he came to that which was his own, but his own rejected him. They've been waiting for him. He was one of their own. He came to them, and all he gets is, no, I don't want to follow you. In John chapter 1, verses 10 to 13. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, notice, the world was made through him. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus came to his people first, the Jews, and they rejected him. It didn't just trouble Jesus, but it also troubled Paul that they would not accept Jesus as the Christ. As we can see from the text, the way that Paul was talking in the first five verses, it troubled him that they would not accept Jesus. They were rejecting the one that could save them. So you imagine the frustration Paul was feeling. So we read verses 6 to 8 now with that in mind. So Paul's struggling here with this thought, and he says in verses 6 to 8, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. So Paul said, it is not as though God's word had failed. The fact that there were other Christians around other than Paul proved that God's word had reached people. There were some Jews that did obey the gospel. For not all who are descended from Israel, that is to say people of the physical nation of Israel, are Israel, referring to the spiritual Israel. We are part of a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king, and we are subjects of the kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Also, those who are descendants of Abraham are not necessarily spiritual children of Abraham. So what he's saying here is these Israelites, they think that they're the people of God, but only those who accept Jesus are the people of God. Paul pointed out that the promise came through Isaac, not Ishmael. Both Ishmael and Isaac were the natural-born sons of Abraham, but Ishmael was not part of the promise. The promise came through Isaac. 
Abraham and Isaac were told that they would have descendants as numerous as the stars. Of course, they had physical descendants, but that's not what God had in mind. God was thinking of of spiritual descendants, those who would be people of faith like Abraham. And we talked about this in Romans chapter 4 already, talking about being credited to him as righteousness, that he believed God, and God said he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. And so we come to verses 9 to 16 now. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older, older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so Paul quoted Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, in which Sarah, Abraham's wife, was told that a year later she would be pregnant and give birth to a son. This son, of course, was Isaac. Then Paul went on to talk about Rebekah. Rebekah was the wife of Isaac, and she bore Jacob and Esau. Even before the two boys were born, Rebekah was told that the older would serve the younger. Well, back then, and even in the time of Jesus, the younger brother always served the older brother. So the oldest son would receive a double portion of the inheritance, whatever the father had left for his children, livestock, and etc., etc. But the oldest son would get a double portion, and then the rest would be divided amongst the rest. But however, God made it clear that the youngest son, Jacob, would be served by the older. Jacob would be the son of promise. The promise would continue through him and his descendants. Also, verse 13 says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God providentially planned that Jacob would be the leader of the descendants of Isaac rather than Esau. And this choice was not based on works, but was made before the children were even born. God had already decided how he wanted his plan to play out. He had already decided who the players were going to be involved in all of this and how it was going to play out. And that's what he had done. And Paul's talking about God's purposes according to election. God chose Abraham to be his people. Then God chose Abraham's son, Isaac, to continue the promise. Then he chose Jacob, who was later called Israel, through whom the promise would come. Then came the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes. So these people were chosen by God to be the recipients of the promise and the covenant of that time. In other words, God chose how he wanted his plan to play out. He already chose the people, and he would accomplish his goal. So what was the promise? What was the promise? We keep reading about the promise, the promise, the promise. Well, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, says this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. 
He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So we're familiar with that verse from Romans chapter 4. Then in chapter 17, just two chapters over, verses 1 to 5. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And so... We see the promises made that he would have many descendants, as numerous as the stars. And Paul talked about that here in Romans chapter 9, talking about that the true descendants of Abraham were those who would be spiritual descendants, not physical, not those from Israel, but those who would accept Jesus as Lord in Christ and would respond to the gospel. They would be spiritual Israel and they would be children of Abraham. But interestingly, This promise is confirmed to Isaac later on in chapter 26, verses 2 to 5. Chapter 26, verses 2 to 5 of Genesis. And says this. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees and my laws. So the oath is confirmed here to Isaac. So the promise is made to him and it continues. So the Jews thought they were the special people of promise. Because they had the law of Moses, they were the physical descendants of Israel. So Paul is trying to get through to them, no, that doesn't qualify you for this. It doesn't work that way. The promises of God were given to the children of promise. God has the right to choose how he works out his promises. And the way he chose was not by fleshly lineage, but by a spiritual one. God says, just because you're descended from Israel, tribe of Benjamin, or whatever tribe you come from, that doesn't make you automatically a recipient of the promise. Those who hear and respond to the gospel are given the right to be called children. They are the children of promise. They are you and I. We are the children of promise. They are spiritual Israel. Those who are the true descendants of Abraham are the ones who receive the promise of eternal life and much, much more. Many promises. They are the true people of God. They are those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and God. The fact that the gospel was first preached to the Jews shows that they were the people of promise, but they had to accept Jesus and the gospel to continue to be the people of promise. If they would have done that, they would have been gone from physical Israel to spiritual Israel, but they didn't do that. So Paul was talking about the same thing all throughout Galatians. And I mentioned a few times, if you study Romans and Galatians side by side, you learn a lot of things. But take a look at Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. I want to look at two last verses, and then we'll finish this lesson. In Galatians chapter 3, and I want you to notice what he says here in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, which is up here on the, up there, so for you to read. 
Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We saw that in Romans chapter 4. So he's repeating it here. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we see there's the promise. So we see it played out. Then we read in verses 26 to 29, the last verses for our lesson today. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So we have passages of scripture that confirm the very thing that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9. That those who accept Christ, who respond to the gospel through the waters of baptism, are the ones who are Abraham's true descendants, are the ones that are the people of promise. That's what we are told. God made it easy to come to him. He simply asked that we believe in and obey the Son and respond to the good news through the waters of baptism. This is the true righteousness of God. Being saved does not depend on how good we are. It doesn't depend on how many rules and laws we follow and if we follow them to the letter, the way the Israelites did. It depends on the righteousness of the righteous one who died on the cross. That's where our salvation depends, on the righteous one who died on the cross. Have you come to Jesus? Have you heard and responded to the gospel? Are you a child of God? Are you a descendant of Abraham? If you have not responded to the gospel, won't you do that today? Won't you do that now as we sing our invitation song? Oh, I love the Lord.